Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am your host, Ben Myers. I'm here with Stephen Cameron, back online, no more, in person. We are locked down again. Thoughts, Stephen? Oh, you know me, Ben. I love lockdowns. I'm very supportive of this uh, liberal government taking away all our freedoms, telling us what to do, when to do, what to wear, how to wear it, everything, man. It's great, you know? Awesome. I hate the idea of going to work and being outside in fresh air. I would just love to be told what to do and where to shop every day. Dougie's telling you that. Dougie's telling you to stay home, Steve. That's your guy. Dougie, Dougie, listen, I feel, I feel bad for, I feel bad for all, all politicians right now. I don't think there's a, a right answer, but I think that there's clearly a wrong answer because the proof is in the pudding. Like, you know, the lockdowns don't seem to be working, at least not these half-ass lockdowns. Um, it's, they're, they're half measures. They're trying to make some people happy and some people not. So anyways. Steve. That's not what we came to talk about, Ben. We did not come to talk about discuss lockdowns. We we have our sponsor, the award-winning Studios. It's premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural visualization and scale model needs. Miso can also help market your project and launch your sales center physically or virtually. Visit MisoStudios.com and ask about live site, their virtual sales center software. It's the media darling. Taking the building industry sales process by storm. So uh, not only do we have a great sponsor, but we have a great guest that I am excited to introduce today. This individual has a big announcement that he's going to share with us. And uh, I'm not going to take that uh, thunder from him, but I am going to tell you that this individual joined Center Court in 2016 and held progressively challenging and elevated positions within the company. He has led numerous high-rise development projects to industry-leading outcomes, including Zen King West City, Forest Hill, and 55 Mercer. RIP. During his tenure at Center Court, I was going to make a Walter Gretzky joke. We got to cut those. We're not allowed to make those. During his tenure at Center Court, Gavin has played key leadership roles across numerous operation areas of the company, including sales, finance, development, and construction. Prior to joining CenterCourt, Gavin worked in Toronto in private equity and investment banking at a major Canadian bank, where he was involved in underwriting, financing, and advising public and private real estate entities. Gavin is a board member of Hold'em for Life Charity Challenge, a non-for-profit organization that has raised in excess of $37 million for cancer research and other worthwhile charitable initiatives. He is currently the co-chair for the real estate industry Hold'em for Life event, which raises more than $2 million annually for cancer research initiatives at Mount Sinai and Princess Margaret Hospital. Gavin holds a dual JD MBA from the University of Toronto and a Bachelor's of Art from Duke University. We got a lot to talk about with this guy. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, and in terms of big announcements, I, I'm, I think I know what you're talking about, but there's a there's a few potentially. So yeah, why are you uh, oh, whoa, he's dropping bomb, woge bombs already? More than one announcement? Oh my yeah. goodness! He's a, a Duke Blue Devil. Get crazy on it. I never knew you went to Duke. What did you go? What were you at Duke for? Is that where you did your MBA? 
No, that was for my undergrad. So, like, I think we're similar vintage, if not the same vintage from high school, Steve. And uh, back when we were graduating, it was the year they were phasing out the 13th grade. The grade 13 wasn't going to be anymore. So, uh, and actually, I don't think it ended up working out the exact way. I think the government pushed it at the 11th hour, and, and there was one more year after us. But uh, I guess at the time I was uh, looking at schools and looking at universities, we were, um, you know, my, my parents were in particular were concerned that there was going to be, in Ontario, this massive problem where, you know, everyone would be, you know, doubling up on their bunks. There wouldn't be any space in any classrooms. Um, so we started looking outside Ontario. I started looking outside of Ontario into the U.S. and elsewhere. And Duke was one of those places where, um, I don't know, it just it was such a uh, unique experience when I walked into the campus. It was really the only place I was looking for that was in the, in the south of the U.S. with great weather, great golf, uh, great academics, great basketball, uh, great reputation. Had, had a lot of things going for it, and I uh, was fortunate enough to get in and... Um, uh, so anyway, that there wasn't much more to it than that. It was looking around in the first instance, and then getting in and uh, and making a making a really fun four years of it. Uh, but ultimately, you know, being in the U.S., it was it was uh, it was exciting. It was a lot of fun. I made a lot of good friends. I have a lot of great you know friendships that have endured today. Like if I went to New York or San Francisco or. You know, Miami, the first couple phone calls are are, are there, but uh, ultimately home is where the heart is. And um, for 90% of my life before going to Duke, I was in Toronto. And uh, and uh, my my girlfriend at the time and now wife was was uh, keen to have me back in Toronto as well. So it was, uh, it was a brief trip down to the U.S. Duke was great, but uh, Canada is, uh, is home for me. And before before Duke, you were, uh, you were a UCC boy, right? I was yes, yeah. We we probably know. I know a couple of your friends, uh, close friends, are UCC guys. So yes, yes, that was my high school. Nice. I'm sure, there's some good stories out of there. It was a lot of fun. Probably nothing to repeat here, but but lots of fun in between. You know, making actually, it's been it's been um, it's been one of the nice surprises. But a lot of a lot of my high school friends uh, ended up uh, making their way into our industry. I think you you guys would both know a lot of them. The you know the. Uh, Andrew Joyner is a close friend, and and Jordan Morissuti, who I met, uh, both both good friends from high school, and um, you know a number of others I, c- I could name that are in real estate, not in development specifically. That uh, that uh, you know it, it just seems to be one of those things where you come back to Toronto and and um, uh, your your close friends end up being in the same industry. It's it's more luck than anything, but yeah, UCC was a great uh, a great start, uh, you know, a great start in life, and. Um, very, feel very fortunate to have gone there. So, so after Duke, you were you did you want to immediately do an MBA, or did you want to join the workforce, or did you, you know, go off to uh, Africa and trek for a little while? What was the plan? Uh, the, the the plan. So, well, what I actually ended up doing is a bit of both. So, I, I went. Uh, I did the you know the the backpacking between the end of university and the start of uh, the law MBA program. The the plan was uh, was to. Uh, to start working, but uh, you know, in terms of qualifications at the time, I, you know, I was coming back from the U.S. Most of my friends who stayed down there were, um, you know, Duke's a pretty well-known name down there. You can you can make a run out of Duke and get into a, a, a good job out of university. Not that that wouldn't be the case in Toronto, but it's definitely a bit different. And I had my eyes at the time set on law, 
Uh, so I went to law school and I, you know, I, I got into U of T and at the time it was just law school. When I first started, I wasn't in the joint degree. And then quickly, I'd call it like one semester in, I met a guy who, uh, who actually Steve was a former UCC guy who was, um, you know, a, a guy three or four years older than me at UCC who I always followed and was, he was good at sports. I thought he was, uh, you know, a, a guy I looked up to and he ended up being in the JD MBA program when I got to law school and, and we got to talking and, um, very quickly realized through those conversations and my own interests that, you know, I, I didn't want to be a lawyer. That wasn't what I wanted to do long term. And um, and I wanted to keep more more doors open. So I, I quickly turned that into um, uh, a law MBA degree and spent the next four years deciding I didn't want to be a lawyer at all. So although people in my life all think that I'm a lawyer because I went to law school, I was never called to the bar. I, I did do you know, I did a summer in New York at Paul Weiss. I did a summer um, uh, at an in-house law at a, a real estate company, and I did uh, a summer at Blake's. Um, but by the time I was ready to graduate, I knew immediately I didn't want to go an article. So I never articled. I wasn't a lawyer. Uh, I wasn't called to the bar. Uh, but I did go into investment banking. So that was, uh, you, you sort of kicked it off by mentioning I was at one of the banks. That was right out of the JD MBA. Uh, spent three and a bit years at National Bank. Um, and that was in, call it 2010 to 2013, that stretch. It was, and I was in the real estate investment banking group. It was probably the busiest stretch uh, you could ever imagine for a junior real estate investment banker. Um, if you look back or if you guys, uh, you probably both remember it, it was an IPO every five minutes. It was capital raises, convertible debentures. It was, um, real estate was just on an absolute tear back then uh, from a public markets perspective. And that's, uh, you know, at, at National, it was a great, uh, great chance to cut my teeth there. They uh, were, were very leanly staffed. Uh, it was myself and two more senior guys, and, and I had an analyst, and that was effectively it from National Bank's perspective. But they were being invited to lead or participate in just about every other uh, every other deal that, you know, a major Canadian, the big five were involved in. So it was myself and guys who were probably 20 years older than me doing the doing the tours to uh, Dallas or the site tours to meet management in you know, different parts of Canada. Whenever there was an IPO, uh, just in terms of keeping up with the pace and having a warm body in the room, I was, I was called upon as a, as a, uh, the young guy in the room to, to represent national banks. So it was a, it was a great uh, educational three years, had really, really awesome uh, people I worked with there. But um, I would say similar to, um, similar to law, I had that feeling pretty, pretty early on that I wasn't going to be a career investment banker and uh, and left to do my own thing at that point, which was uh, which was a search fund. I, I assume you want to hear about that. And, and it's a quick story for your listeners who don't know. A search fund effectively, you you, uh, you raise capital to buy a business. And then the outlook is uh, as, as the person doing the searching, you also join the business. So it's not just passive capital. You're not um, you're not buying a business and, and, and then just sort of stepping back and, and feeling good about it. You play a very hands-on operational role, which I think you'll see from, from where I went throughout my career. That was always in a passion of mine is being involved on the operational side, getting really into a business, getting my fingers into it, getting my hands dirty, getting, um, you know, uh, into the operational side. That's always been one of my passions that's really driven me. So, uh, the appeal of that was, um, and a couple of guys from Western Steve would have would have uh, would have been a successful search fund model that sort of brought it to Canada. I think you know a lot of them. The idea was uh, raise capital, uh, identify, and then buy a business. And uh, and then for myself and my partner, who's a, a former lawyer, 
uh, for us to get into the actual management of the business, as I mentioned. So we spent the better part of two years. We raised capital, all, all sort of Canadian uh, LPs. Um, it was a small amount, but we raised enough to keep the lights on and, and conduct a search, have an office over our head and identify a business. And we had, I would say, two or three that we were quite close to transacting on, um, but for various reasons decided not to. Um, and uh, ultimately came to the tough tough call in the end. And ultimately, um, you know, career-wise, it, it worked out fine. But at the time, uh, up close, it felt like a really tough, big, big failure moment in life. It was the decision to say, you know what, we've done our best, we've searched, um, but we don't think that there's something out there that makes sense to put bigger dollars into and actually close on and, and then spend, you know, the better part of a decade operating and, and making money for everyone who believed in us. That call, that judgment call to walk away was definitely one of the harder ones I've had to make in life. And my partner and I agonized over it. We talked to all our LPs and ultimately reached the conclusion it was the right thing. And, um, you know, they were fully supportive. Uh, so that was a tough chapter when, you know, after it ended, um, I was looking around. The next question was obviously, you know, you've, you've had invest, you've come from law and investment banking. You've had, uh, an entrepreneurial failure. Uh, you know, it didn't work out and what's next. So I was looking around and, um, you know, my passion for real estate had always been there from the investment banking days. My family, has always had an interest and involvement in real estate as well. Um, we've been involved in, in real estate development projects over the years as well. And uh, it was something I was always, always very keen on. And uh, from my real estate investment banking days onward and around the kitchen table growing up, you know, I had a very specific set of criteria in mind if I was going to make a move into real estate development and uh, looked around the Toronto market. I was looking for uh, a group that was you know, uh, uh, well-funded, so had, had access to capital, had a great track record from a principal perspective, had the right philosophy and alignment in terms of how I would fit into the, into the puzzle. So, you know, someone that would be willing to, you know, share, share in a fair way over time with good results um, if things worked out well. And uh, really looking for, you know, a meritocratic environment to do well in and, and find the right person that would take a bet on me. One of our LPs out of the search fund uh, put me in touch with Andrew Hoffman. Uh, and at the same time, one of, uh, one of my close friends put me in touch with, with Shemez. So both of those happened within five minutes of one another. And, um, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I, I quickly joined uh, Center Court and um, I did it on a... A complete bet on yourself structure. I, I came in. There was, there was no employment agreement. There was, uh, you know, there was no promise of anything specifically. The shop was very small. It was, uh, uh, it was clearly, you know, a place that had a ton of potential, but it was still getting, still in the very early stages of becoming what it is today. And uh, and that was a really exciting thing for me. I, I looked around. I saw the track record of the people in the room. I saw the opportunity ahead. I saw the way that they were they were executing. I saw the philosophy. I saw the way that people looked at the business, understood the uh, the potential of what we had and the way that we were going to operate. And it just felt so right day one and um, have a look back. Wow. What a journey. Yeah. So, so tell us about some of the, uh, you know, so you joined, you joined Center Court, Andrew Hoffman and, and Shemez had, I guess, just sort of started it up. This is uh, in 2016. Does that sound about right? Like five years ago? No, they've been yeah. at it for three years though. So, so yeah. it's a 10-year-old company, right? So you're, you're, you're about five years in when you, when you join. 
Yeah, no. So when I joined, it was a really interesting point. I would say the company at that point had proven out the success of the business model. The the so at that point, just to put a, a more context around it, five years in, we had uh, just about completed the first. Pro- so the first project was completed. Peter Street was done. Um, we were on the cusp of wrapping up uh, the two next projects, which were Index uh, and uh, and Karma. So those two projects were just getting off the ground and uh, Grid, or sorry, we were just concluding, and then Grid and uh, Core were, were just getting started. But I think um, it was, and the reason I say it was interesting is when I joined, um, the mandate was totally different than what I ended up doing. It was to... Um, it was to get involved in you know some of the legal side of the business based on my background and to help with the acquisitions pipeline, which actually today is what I spend very little time on. So uh, that, that was my mandate because we, we had this company that had really done extremely well on the execution of the projects we had, but we wanted to grow. We wanted to have a pipeline that would make a sustainable company. We knew that um, we, we would do well when the projects were secured, but getting those projects in the door was the mandate. So uh, when I started, that was that was really on everyone's mind. We were all looking around. We were uh, looking for the next big opportunity. I started in May, and I distinctly remember, you know, May, May passed. We got into the summer. Um, you know, people outside of the company who weren't necessarily, who were in the company, but, and there was only about seven or eight of us at that point, were really... I would say curious slash looking around to make sure that another deal was coming in, that we were at that phase and wanted to be sure that, you know, the next project would come in and the project after that. So May passed, uh, June, July passed, August passed. And then, um, you know, people were starting to say, we need to get another project in the door sooner than later. And it's one of those things, and I know both of you can, can relate to this, um, opportunities come in batches and, you know, it's never as low as it seems. You're never as high as you seem. And then all of a sudden, in the last quarter of my first year there in 2016, we set the foundation and closed or set up a deal and, and went firm on three different projects in, I would say, uh, uh, the span of a month at the end of at the end of 2016. So those those projects ended up becoming Zen, our Transit City partnership with Smart Centers, and uh, and the project actually, ironically, that we're about to launch. Uh, five years later, um, Prime, which is at which is on Jarvis Street. So that one obviously uh, took a lot longer to get approvals on than anyone ever anticipated. Um, but the other two got going almost right away, and um, and were sort of the cornerstone of of uh, the next five years uh, that we spent building. So I guess like just to answer your question directly, Steve, the the you know the the company when I first came in was in that in that mode where we wanted to make sure that we had. Bought a bunch of uh, bought a bunch of land, done it done it in a smart way, and set ourselves up to um, you know to keep the pipeline robust and to and to execute. So that was that was the mandate uh, then. And fast forward five years, we've you know we're now seventeen or eighteen projects in now uh, in terms of what we're public on and what we can announce. Uh, the landscape looks a lot different now. We've got um, you know a, a, a different set of issues and, and opportunities in front of us. The main one is 
growing this company and scaling the actual company and, and making sure we can execute on everything that we now have from an opportunity perspective, which frankly is a lot broader and and uh, and uh, more robust than what we would have had back then in, in terms of you know opportunities on our doorstep and things that we can transact on. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I I'm curious. You know, you 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 know, obviously doing some uh, re, you know real estate related deals at uh, at the bank. But I know that uh, that you guys tend to hire a lot of people that are that don't have a real estate uh, background that are more you know uh, heavy on drive and and heavy on other skills. Is that is that is that a good uh, you know representation of your hiring philosophy and and uh, and you know how difficult what is it was it for you to jump into a development company having not done any development? Yeah, I think. Hit the nail on the head. We are pretty unconventional in the way that we hire, um, and that that tone started from the top when Andrew founded the company. Uh, within, like, if you think about the progression of sh- the president ahead of me, so Shemez, he joined with zero background whatsoever. Came from investment banking as well. Had zero background, practical experience in in condo development. Um, but made a bet on himself and followed a smart guy, Andrew Hoffman, and uh, and was operating in an environment where, from that point of you know zero knowledge day one to five years later being um, being announced as the president, uh, in between he learned everything he needed to and and became I think one of the most respected leaders in the industry in that five year time frame. That's all reflective of the um, the philosophy you mentioned, which is bringing on people who have you know the, the talent, uh, the right drive, the right motivation, um, the right skill set, uh, basically all of the core elements. But the resumes of the people that we've hired have, have looked pretty different than than most of the resumes that a traditional um, one of our peers might might look for. It's 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 a bit of a different philosophy. It's that if you put the right person in the right seat, um, surround them with other people and the right culture uh, and a lot of opportunity and let them make the best of it and, and align them so that, you know, there's, there's a lot of motivation for them to do well. If you put all of those ingredients together, we've, uh, we've, we've really had a, a lot of success, we think in, in, in getting good results out of, uh, out of our, um, out of our company, out of our culture, out of, out of our people and made it really exciting for people to work here. And by the way, that same blueprint that, worked well for Shemez is, is pretty similar. There's a lot of parallels between him and I in that regard. I, I came on zero experience, like you mentioned. I, I had investment banking experience, but you're being charitable. It has absolutely no relevance to what uh, what I'd be asked to do in the day-to-day. Uh, but, you know, same same sort of uh, approach, philosophy, model, and culture played out and um, over the past five years till, uh, till today and, um, you know, where I'm stepping up and taking a similar jump like Shemez did uh, uh, five years ago. My at my five years now, my five year mark, I'm I'm uh, taking that same loop. So that so so no, I guess I guess that's the cue for for the big announcement is uh, you know Gavin Trump taking over as the new president of Center Court. So first and foremost, congratulations and uh, kudos to you. Obviously, uh, a big accomplishment. A lot of hard work has gone into that, but uh, must feel good, and you must be really excited. Yeah, I am. I mean, since I think I mentioned this at the top, but since the first day I, I came into Center Court, it was uh, it just felt right. There's been so many, um, so many, uh, you know, opportunities to uh, to be thankful. And, and the company is just built in a really unique way that I think everyone who's here, uh, you know, and has been here for, for more than 
six months realizes the company is really unique. Uh, it's unique in a few ways. Ben, you hit on, hit hit the nail on the head, but um, it, it's the type of culture, a type of environment that uh, is so rewarding to work at and and uh, and exciting over time. So, I'm I'm personally um, really really excited for uh, what the future has in store for us. And the reason for that is, um, it's funny. Like most people from the outside looking in. Uh, you know, it would seem really odd to have a guy as capable as Shemez leave after five years or, or, or take a step back and, and allow someone else to take a step up. And, um, you know, I, and I completely understand that. But within our company internally, it's, it's actually viewed as a very natural thing and a very healthy thing. So uh, I think just touching on what you said, Ben, like everyone in our company has the ability to grow and, and is given a lot of, uh, of, of rope to grow into roles to um, to basically leapfrog where they would otherwise be if they're proving proving it out in real time if they're doing you know things that um, that help the company they're they're given all the rope that they um, that they can handle so I, I think just in keeping with that general philosophy um, myself coming in as president is is a signal of our broader outlook and the and and the partnerships confidence that center courts built in that way is built differently than other developers and um, uh, you know, it's never been about Shemez. It's never been about Andrew. It's never been about Steve or myself. There isn't a single person at the company that's that's larger than life at Centercourt and dictates the direction of the company. It's in fact, it's the opposite. We're we're led by this broad group of talented individuals that are trained up internally to work hard, have low ego, do things, um, you know, in in a way that supports our broader goals and and. Uh, in that theme, it was it was you know I think a natural progression from everyone else internally in our company and um, and important for us to promote from within someone that's got the DNA of our company the the confidence of our colleagues that's learned the business of center court way from the ground up so uh, you know from our perspective uh, it's it's this natural internal progression um, and obviously from my personal perspective it's it's a it's a huge honor and I'm I'm really excited for everything that we're already planning out for the next year and, and into the future. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, the one thing that's kind of interesting that is, is I, I always find interesting when I talk to, to, to different people in our space is, is specialization versus, uh, you know, being a, a jack of all trade. Do you prefer to, you know, to have employees that, you know, that are, that are specialized you know, in one thing in planning and construction and marketing and sales, or do you like to have employees touch a little bit of every part of the business? I'm just curious to get your philosophy on that. I would say like, you know, my role, for example, I'm, I'm a generalist. I'm a, you know, when I'm on a project, it's mostly from a business, uh, bringing a business lens to a bunch of different disciplines. Um, the people that are specialists uh, within our company are are specialists by choice. The, you know, our head of development would have focused on a development. Our head of construction, obviously, the same thing. Our customer care, finance, etc. But um, I would say, you know, the the and this is the theme that I keep coming back to. They all came in with without a background specific. Well, construction is is probably the the exception. But every other um, every other person who's in a sort of senior leadership role in our company um, came in without you know a, a background in that role and grew into it. So um, we are we're all we're specialized. We have specialists within our company, um, and we have generalists. So we see the strengths in both. And the team, the way you build a good team is you have a bit of a bit of both. Someone who's got the the big picture to see all 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 angles, understand 
all elements from cradle to grave of a project and then the specialists that can make sure that you're not missing any of the detail and um when you work that way and you work together you don't have any silos which is which is the nice part and, and you end up having better results interesting i'm just i'm just shocked that you know the amount of different skill sets a developer has to have from from acquisition to, to execution to, to finance uh, to sales right it's uh it's it's a very unique uh, uh, business that a, that a developer has to manage. That's what keeps it fun. Yeah, no, it's true. And I joked when we started, you know, like, you know, uh, we're going to introduce you and then you're going to tell us the center court secret sauce. But I am curious if you had to pinpoint one thing that has made center court so successful, um, is it, is it just like the merging of all these independent skills or, or is it just the drive or is it the focus or, you know, obviously you guys, you know, have done a number of great large projects in the past in a short period of time, built up quite a track record, you know, your reputation precedes itself. So I'm just curious, you know, what, what is the secret sauce? Yeah, this is a well-listened to podcast, but I will, I will tell you that I think the, uh, the thing that we do um, probably the most differently, or at least I think is I haven't had the benefit of working at other developers So take this with a grain of salt, but I would say, um, you know, the, the, the thing that I think is most unique about any work environment I've been in is the, the culture at CenterCourt and the uh, ability to sort of have, you know, the guy who just come in day one, have a good idea or poke a big hole in what, you know, Andrew Hoffman said or what I said at the last meeting and have that be totally fine. Uh, zero politics and just everyone expected to. Uh, speak up and, and to do it in a, a straightforward way and defend their point of view and um, and and really just it's about getting to the right answer. I would say that's our, our biggest sort of cultural difference. It's very very obvious when you walk in the door day one that you're expected to speak up. You're expected. No one's there's no politics. You just have to uh, say what's on your mind. So I think that's been one of the one of the keys. And I would say. Um, the other thing that's just definitely true about having um, good results over over projects is very rarely is it like the you know there's this narrative like there's these these big ideas that make uh, make developers a ton of money and uh, you know are, are transformative in nature. Don't get me wrong, there's definitely big ideas that that do wonders for a project, especially on the marketing front and definitely on some of the design. And you can you can be very clever in different ways. But uh, the, the truth, I think, on how you end up having great results is you make a thousand good small decisions and you do it in a very logical way and you do it in a very um, predictable, reliable way and, and you just you, you track everything. And that is, it sounds really boring and, and, and it's not the sort of sexy podcast answer I'm sure you're looking for, but that I think is a big, a big part of, uh, of, of, of our formula is making sure that we're we're really, really on top of the details and um, and and following through on what we say we'll do and and holding ourselves accountable internally, but also externally for people that we deal with. So that that I would say is 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 another big part of what we do. Great. The the one thing I wanted to ask about is you know Steve and I we deal with a lot of developers. Steve probably even more more than I do. And there's definitely some uh, what we call uh, fly by the seat of their pants developers out there. 
but you guys are definitely what I would call, you know, an institutional developer. You focus on, you know, IRR to the, you know, to the to the limited partner. Yeah, you know, can you expand on that? We, not everyone that's listening to our podcast is a is a developer that understands that language. Maybe you can I- explain how that works. Maybe even to some of the hosts that might not uh, fully understand that. (laughs) You're burying yourself, man. You can't say that. I'm not not pointing to any one of the hosts, but... uh... (laughs) Sure, yeah. I, I think yeah. So we we are IRR focused. That you know, it's a it, it's something we've been very focused on day one. Um, I think you're, I'm going to give your, your your listeners more credit. I think they'll 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 know what that is, or they can Google it quickly. But it's uh, it's it's definitely a focus for us, and and that's just uh, you know the the way that we've set ourselves up. It's it's been one of the cornerstones of of our success and how we've uh, you know how we've built our business. I would say, you know, in terms of how that's how that's translated to our, our broader opportunity set, it's obviously made it, um, you know, uh, significantly easier for us to um, to fund our future deals, and people are 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 seeing the, the historical results. Um, but I think the other thing it's done is it's opened up a world of opportunities to do deals that are are uh, joint ventures because. Often, as you know, Steve, really well, like the 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 deal that gets done is is done because you're you've got a track record that people believe in. They believe in your ability to execute. They believe in your ability to close. But there's also a structural element to it. If people want to partner and they want not only to sell you their land, they want to take a part of the project economics and be a part of it. They have to believe that um, that that's going to be a smart bet and that you're the right person to bet on to partner with. So. In terms of our our overall business, I would say the biggest impact IRR has been the obvious one, which is good good results and good returns, and the people who have been there for us and, and trusted in us have have uh, have thankfully had some benefit, and we've repaid that trust. But also, uh, I think it's open doors. I think it's been one of the keys, and and you know today over half our deals are do- as, are done as joint ventures with landowners who want to unlock the value of their land and and participate in the development profit and. Being able to show those uh, those historical um, returns has been, I think, a big key. Love it. So let me let me switch gears a little bit. Um, the IRs are sexy to a point, but I mean, I heard a great line from one of our uh, our partners, who's is an old school guy who's definitely not focused on our on IRRs. He goes, "Steve, I don't care. I can't buy a fucking boat with IRR." <laughs> So, you know, like there's there's the old school and the new school way of thinking, you know, the old school ways, you know, I put in a million bucks and I get two million bucks out. That's a great deal. And I, and when, when you challenge him and you're like, yeah, but it took you six years to get two million bucks. That, that That's not, you know, like technically that's not that great of a deal. But if you got that six million bucks in three years, it's a phenomenal deal. So I think like the whole industry on a whole, and it goes back to Ben's earlier point, as, uh, as, as he mentioned to your hiring and your people, um, your, your your people's and, and their backgrounds. It's like you don't necessarily need real estate people to teach, you know, high highly sophisticated financial engineering. It's, it's more like, okay, how can we get the returns for our LPs? Yeah, I would, I would say, uh, I, listen, there, there's, there's definitely different ways of looking at it. And I think that's, you hit the nail on the head. Like when you bring people in with different viewpoints, like we have, um, you know, people have different ways of looking at it as well. But I would say we're, we're, 
depends on what you want to what you want to value as a as a as an investor and what you want to look at. We've we've taken the outlook that for the reasons I think you share, Steve, that IRR is the metric to measure and track against, and and um, that our investors should care about the most. So that's what we focus on. That. We also, you know, we also focus on other metrics, as you well know, when we're underwriting, you know, margins important, you got to have a return on return on capital, everything else. There's, there's, there's lots of things that factor into it. But I mean, we found historically, if you focus on, on, um, on the IRR, everything else will take care of itself. That's been our, our main approach. Let's switch, switch yeah. gears a little bit. IRR, you know, like I said, IRR is only sexy to a point. Um, but you mentioned that there may be a, another big announcement coming out of uh, the Trump camp. I don't know what it is, but, uh, you know, Mr. President of Center Court. But what else, what else is in store? What else can we look forward to? What's coming up next uh, for you? Well, I, I, I thought you were—I thought you were set, setting me up to announce our, our the launch of our next project. I thought I thought you were giving me a low-hanging uh, softball here, not not a Ben Myers pitch, a, a CDC pitch. <laughs> there you have it. There's your pitch. So what's next? Well, by the time, by the time this prod, podcast is out, Prime will be sold out. So I, I don't know. You know, we uh, we can't. We can't say, yeah. It's better not be about Prime because that's old news. I mean, I think you're right, actually, Ben. Now that I say, if, if everything goes well, this will be a this will be a history lesson more than a, a projection. But I think, listen, we've got so much work on it, and I thought you were you were you were teeing us up to to talk about it. No, I, guess I'm, I'm, I think it's facetious. We're excited. I, I think really what I would love to hear about is you guys. You guys went out with, um, with A. Wellesley, which was, I think, a bit of uh, not a, not a surprise, but I think there's been some. Uh, it's been a bit gun shy to launch projects. So you guys nailed it out of the park with that, as far as what Shemaz told me in, uh, on your price per foot, and now you're going out with Prime. So, just what's what's the thought process launching a project in COVID? You guys have yeah. a great investor base, so I know that's strong. But I mean, I'm sure you've belabored the point for hours and hours and hours on end before you just decided to go go live. Yeah, I mean, so this will be our third launch in COVID. So we, we launched. Um, we, we, we launched 55 Mercer right before COVID was a reality. It was in February of last year. So it, COVID cases had shown up, but it hadn't really been a massive factor, certainly not in the development world. The next project was uh, 199 Church, which we went from, you know, March, where like the market completely shut down. No one was launching anything. There was talk of the market being shut down for a year or longer. Uh, agents were were completely despondent and and you know it was it was as low as it could be in march right after we launched 55 mercer so great timing for 55 mercer but not a lot of visibility on what would come next by july we'd launched 199 church and that was faster than we ever imagined we would be back in the market launching a project uh you know, that was the decision in July. We saw the numbers coming down. We've been monitoring everything really closely. There was a launch on 28 Eastern that went well, uh, sold quickly, and at a price we felt good about with a sweet mix and a product type that we thought 199 lined up against nicely. And we made the judgment call uh, then in the summer of July of last year that uh, we, if we did it the right way and, and came out with the right product, that we could get uh, a good response from the market. And uh, there was a lot of thinking, like you said, that went around it. There was a drive-in movie theater event that drove, drove a lot of eyeballs onto the, that launch, and that was something really unique and innovative in the market. 
fast forward like a few months later and you know it's been such a covid driven um marketplace for the past year 2020 was the rest of 2020 was really tough we went into you know the second wave and um call it heading into the holidays it was this mix of optimism and pessimism there was the vaccine approvals that came out uh, the new year started off well and the sentiment was moving in the right direction but then all of a sudden things took a turn for the worse covid counts went back up. There was a stay-at-home order in, I think it was January. Um, all of this was coupled with school closures, and we quickly realized this is on 8 Wellesley, which we'd been signaling to the market we'd be out really early in the new year, but we realized we needed to be patient and track the market closely and wait for a signal that the pendulum was swinging back in the right direction. So, um, you know, the first signs of, of sentiment improving in the market came it was sort of early February. COVID case counts were consistently trending downward for about a week, and people were starting to talk about reopening timelines. And by that first week of February, we were, um, I would say, we were starting to see an opening and, and confidence on reopening coming up. And, you know, the, the what you referenced, Steve, on a lot of, you know, back and forth and thinking, I would say there was a few observations that that gave us confidence at that point. Firstly, the condo resale market was heating up materially, so our you know that's always a good indicator of, of the the pre-sale uh, pre-con market. Secondly, um, just reading the tea leaves, the number of inbound inquiries about a Wellesley we were getting, it really started to pick up. Uh, along with other projects where we, where we had remaining inventory, people were picking up the phone and calling. And then thirdly, just keeping our finger on the pulse, talking to uh, the city's. Uh, top pre-con agents on a daily basis to get direct feedback. So that was a Wellesley. We made the decision to launch on the first week of February, uh, which I think was a gutsy call at the time. If you think back, it seems like a no-brainer now. But um, by mid-February, when we officially launched, um, the trends that we've been seeing in early February had continued and, and market conditions had approved. And um, we were fortunate because we didn't have any direct competition in the market. No one else had um, had. had I think people were somewhat waiting to see how we did. So uh, that combination of, of uh, sort of the optimism and the momentum of the pendulum coming back, the lack of, of other projects in the market, I think set us up for uh, for what we had, which was a really, really successful launch that, um, you know, within a week, maybe even a weekend, we were we, we knew that we would be on a very good path. We were 98% sold after a week um, at, at great pricing over, you know, over half a billion or half, half a billion of real estate sold within a week. So that was the, um, you know, the, the, the moment where we realized the tremendous response we saw in a Wellesley um, that our, you know, our confidence in the market, it being back, it being resilient, um, it being a place where uh, we would be very comfortable for the balance of 2021 that, if you picked your right spots, you did it in the right way. You had the right product. You did the right marketing campaigns that uh, we could continue to continue to do what we'd done for a lot of 2020 and pick our spots and, and do well. So that was the story of Eight Wellesley and um, and and sort of the the thinking that went in went into our February launch. We've uh, we've talked on this podcast a lot about uh, about sales and 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 how uh, how different developers have different philosophies. And we 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 always say there's the Brad Lamb model of of sell 65, 70% of the units, uh, really crank the pricing up and then, you know, sell slowly over the, the, you know, two, three, four year construction period. And then we talk about the center court model, which is essentially blowing it out in uh, a couple weekends. 
Uh, just curious why you go that route. Why, why, why do you sell all the units? Why not try to take advantage of uh, future price appreciation during the construction period? Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of reasons for, for why we like to do it the way we do it. I, I would say like from, from a long-term brand perspective, uh, it's really important that your, your purchasers uh, do well. Like ha- having them do well is, is something that's very important to us. They're, they're our most important partner in the long run is having a great reputation and people knowing that we price our projects so that they sell out quickly. And by extension, there's something there for the purchaser. Um, you know, that's, that's part of our, that's part of our philosophy. I would say, um, you know, from a benefits perspective to us, I interrupt, you, interrupt you for one second. And, and you just said something there that I don't think I've ever heard another developer say, and that is, that is like one of the most, I don't want to say like the deepest thing ever said on the Toronto Under Construction podcast, but it's such an important piece of the puzzle that I think a lot of people forget about is that your buyers, your investors are the most important partner you ever have. Like it's sounds pretty simple, but it's such a big philosophy that, like I said, no one's ever mentioned. So kudos for you guys for a, acknowledging that and B, you know, realizing and capitalizing on that. So it's it's got to be a big piece of it because they come back for more. I've definitely said on uh, several presentations of mine that maybe Steve is too busy to go to that squeezing every dollar out of every sale might not be the best philosophy because the, you know your your investors are your partners. It's not it's not like a low rise developer that's really selling one house to someone that might live there for twenty years. You're selling to an investor that you want to keep coming back, and they're they continue to be successful if they they see that you're not trying to uh, uh, to get the absolute top dollar in the market on every single sale. Then and, and you want to see them successful. I think that's a, a you know, that's a positive outcome, right? Second guy. <laughs> I'm, not a develop- I'm not a developer, so <laughs> so he is the first developer you've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so, like, listen, there's, there's, I think, that exact philosophy, Ben, you hit the nail on the head. Like, you, you, you need to have, and that's on the front end, and then on the back end, you've got to deliver what you say. You've got to live up to your promises. The renderings have to be reality. The, 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 the suites have to be delivered in great condition. It's, part of an overall exercise, like our big goal of being, you know, the largest uh, and, and um, you know, most respected developer in the high rise industry. It starts with the point of sale, but it ends with a great product. So everything along the way, but to answer your question, there's, there's that philosophy that drives it. And then there's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of other thinking that goes into taking that approach. So just off the top of my head, I would say, you know, when you have Steve, uh, a project that's a hundred percent sold, like it, you're going to feel that it's a sharper deal to underwrite. So that's, that's, you know, there's benefits on that end. It's a lot easier for, for our, you know, our partners to get their heads into on the, on the, uh, debt side on the like corporate side, you can all shift your focus. You've, you've, you've gone out of sales and you can focus on, on getting everything right. That comes after sales, which is a lot of the heavy lifting. So there's that sort of that benefit as well. And I would say, you know, uh, on, on the on the actual funding of it, it's 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 really nice to have all of your deposits in. And like, let's play it out. You have a you have a great result on on fifty five Mercer in, in February, and it's done um, in a different way. And you decide to sell fifty percent instead of a hundred percent. You don't feel so smart in March. Like there's there's the the risk perspective of it as well. So. You know, we've had a market uh, that's gone the right way and has made a lot of people 
rewarded for waiting and selling and, and taking a longer longer time frame. But our outlook is, you know, for, for all the reasons we've mentioned, um, you, you don't want to get too greedy. And if the project works, let's uh, let's make it work. Let's let our purchasers be the benefit beneficiaries of, of the prices going up over time and not us. We can make money if we sell it at the right price day one and lock in our lock in our top line and and lock in our costs as quickly as we can after that. I, I really I know you didn't want to divulge your your secret sauce, but this is part of it. I mean, I think you guys are extremely efficient in terms of buying sites, putting them into uh, your planning department or internal planning department immediately, getting through the entitlement process very quickly and efficiently, getting approved, getting sold, and then getting into the ground probably arguably as fast or uh, faster than anyone in the business. And I think it's probably one of your, you know, if I look at your track record over the last 10 years, why have you been able to do so many projects in such a short period of time? It's, it's that, I guess, you know, my question is, do you underwrite deals assuming, you know, that you're going to go to sale before you have approvals or do you go for sale and, and sell out the condo and worry about costs going up? Because that's a big part of this, you know, business. It's like timing the market in terms of, What's your revenue line and what's your cost? And those are two moving targets. But once you fix your revenue, you're you're kind of screwed if costs double. We're not kind of screwed. You're fucked. So you know, like I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, like it's a fine. Like I, I hear you. All the big guys who I know who are successful, I guess it's not all of them, but a lot of them, you know, sell out the project, have their approvals, get that get their contracts fixed, and and go to work. I mean, I guess that's your model, but I mean. It, it, it's timing and it, it's a bit of an art, not a science. Would you agree? And, and is that sort of what another one of the, the reasons why you think you guys have been so successful? Yeah, I, I was, I was saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely the way we look at the world. Um, so we'll do like to answer your question directly, Steve, we, we will often, um, before we sell, we'll, we'll spend money to do the right thing, which is, you know, get all of our plans ready beyond what you need to sell, get everything ready, get as much as you can ready so that, the moment you're sold, you're ready to go out to the market and get all of your your trade contracts lined up. And that's not that's not a common way of doing it. Most people will 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 uh, take their time after they sell to design their building fully, get to the end of the line, get full uh, drawings ready, and then tender. And you know that could be a year, that could be two years later. A lot happens in our business in two years, like 2020, 2021. Like no one saw that coming. Um, and for you know it. If, if, if you're willing to um, just do a little bit more work at the front, put a, put a little more capital to play, you can get everything lined up in a way that allows you to align your marketing and, and your and your locking in of construction costs, which is your single biggest unknown at the time you sell. Um, and that's, I think, you know, you said it, Steve. I think that's the, the, the way that a lot of people are moving towards because I think it's the right thing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's... Uh... Well, whatever. Everyone has their style, and everyone has has been successful in their own right. But when I when I kind of look at the speed in which you guys execute, you know, to me, speed is everything. You'd, you'd hate to be the guy right now who sold in twenty eighteen and is built and is and is tendering in twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. You'd have to cancel the project, and then you're stuck yeah. with that on your on your resume, which nobody wants because you, you get dragged through the mud by the media. Although you know, it's, I guess you know, we talk about this all the time. Like you can't build a building can't get financing to build a building that doesn't make any money. So you kind of are screwed if you do or screwed if you don't. Right. But 
anyway, yeah, it's uh, you're right. You would not want to be that guy who sold an 18 and tendering now, like you're done. So, so in, ter- in terms of in terms of buying land now, are you got how are you guys factoring in you know uh, inclusionary zoning? Is that is that something that you guys are are, are discussing at your shop? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm like I mentioned, I'm less involved day to day with it, but it is top of mind when we underwrite for sure. It's it's one of those things that you know it's a great it's a great tool uh, in the sense that um, it's a great cause and it's something that um, makes sense from a policy perspective and you know in the in the abstract is a good thing. But and I, I've heard your I've heard you talk about this all the time. The, the reality is that. No one is going to get, a, and I've heard you say this exact thing, Ben. No one is going to get a project approved or built by extension. It just will not happen unless the project is is viable, financially viable. And for that to happen, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of things have to go right. So when new costs are introduced and put um, put on the plate of the developer, that means one of two things: either the prices go up at the top, which often happens. It's just people have to sell at a certain price point. And it takes them a long time because they got to make the performer work, or uh, or they or the project isn't viable. The land never gets purchased, and the development doesn't happen. So um, yeah, we think about it. We we integrate it into all our work. Like there's no there's no way you can't. Uh, you have to. Um, you have to think about all costs. You have to think about anything that's uh, that's that's changing and that could change, and that's a big one. So. The short answer is yes. It factors into everything that we think about. It factors into whether a site works. It factors into uh, our, our thinking, just like any other cost would 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 have to be considered. But it's got big impact. I know you. I know you look at this, and it's one of the ones that's you know it's not it's not obvious how it's going to impact. It could be really really material, and and uh, well, it is really material right now, and in, in the way that it's currently set up. Um, but it's. You know, it's one that's put a lot of uncertainty into our, our acquisitions pipeline. So I got to ask you one question. It's, it kind of ties on, you know, tethers onto the, the last one there. But, uh, you know, you guys have a successful track record. You've been able to raise money both, um, I think, privately and institutionally. You have a couple of funds. You've provided great returns to your investors who are probably now lining up at the door to give you more money, which is a great place to be. Um is there, would you say that you learned any lessons, though, out of um, your your earlier days? I'd say you kind of use it as like you, you called it like your uh, your failed your failed experiment with the uh, in the investment banking world, where you had the capital lined up, but you had, I guess, the discipline to not put the money out the door, as tempting as it may have been, to uh, to chase a deal just to get started. I mean, I'm sure there was days where you're like let's just buy this deal to get going that must have taken a tremendous amount of courage and and just like i said discipline um any relation to to those days and lessons you learned then and and today when you have great backing and probably sites being thrown across your desk daily just to be patient and wait for the right one uh i i would say independent of my background that we're just set up in a way where we would never green light a deal that we didn't as a group feel collectively awesome about. So we're, you know, when we, when we set it up and we're looking at a land and uh, we're about to press play, we just announced one. So 1100 Shepherd, we, we announced a, an acquisition that we just did before we did that one. We, we all, you know, the people who are leading that initiative brought in the broader leadership team. We all got around the table. We looked at it. Um, we talked about, 
the pros, the cons, the risks. Um, so we have this, I, I think, like a, a very intellectually honest approach to it where, you know, we're, we're not going to make that gut call. At least if we make a gut call, it's going to be one that everyone feels good about, everyone who's got a meaningful uh, stake in, in making sure it's a success. So, um, you know, me personally, my my discipline on uh, in my search fund world, I would say is is just a reason that I fit in well at CenterCore because there's a lot of people who are kind of thinking the same way and and uh, taking that approach because you know in the long run that's 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 the sort of mindset I think that uh, that you know helps build a company over a 10, 15, 20, 100 year time frame. Uh, not not one that's more more gut and more you know impulsive that's 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 what gets you in trouble in a you know over the long run at least it gets you in trouble smart answer that was the right answer by the way i was i was the tests and you passed so that's good uh, when i when i when i sold a data report right, there was right, plenty right. of developers that said they didn't want to subscribe because uh they just make decisions based on their gut so <laughs> so i appreciate people that are very data in uh data intensive so i do i do, I do want to ask this one question of you because there's this there's this guy on twitter who sells about 40 resales a year in his office and uh you know, he works out of a hot dog stand of an office, but he's a, he's an expert on the new home market. You know, it all, the, the entire market is driven by by foreign buyers, and uh, and that's what's propping up the pre-con market. Can you tell us a little bit about about uh, about your buyers? I know, obviously, you you focus a lot on investors and through the through the, the brokerage community. You know, can you can you dispel some of this uh, this uh, talk that it's all uh, foreign investors that keep the units vacant. It's just not. It's just not not supported by any truth at all. Like if if you look at our first off, a lot of our buyers are different project to project. So like generalizing it is is very different. Um, you know, at a project like our Transit City launch, huge proportion of different buyers. If you look at the, um, you know, the the people that came in the door and were buying our units at Transit City, it's a lot of people who have grown up, lived in Vaughan, love it have a different outlook on it. And you would never see them coming through our door when we'd launch 55 Mercer just a short time later. So definitely different buyers. Um, from a foreign capital perspective, it's a complete non-story. It's um, one of those things that is is obviously a highlight in the, you know, it's in the headlines, but you know, as well as I do, uh, both of you guys know that you can't get bank funding with, uh, like the stories that are out there, that all of these deals are foreign capital. You need to you need to be able to show like there's there's a, a max cap most of the time on on what will be accepted. So our you know our our, our we're we're not in that camp whatsoever. Um, a lot of what we do see is purchasers that are um, that are repeat buyers that are uh, you know satisfied with the product, domestic Canadian buyers who come back and. Um, and want to be in another project that had success with us, and that that's a common uh, story. But I would say, from a from a foreign buyer perspective, no, it's not it's not something that we're allowed to do, and it's not something that we we would ever want to do. It, it actually is worse for us than than good, and there's plenty of demand here domestically. I wanted to, I wanted to ask this question because someone on Twitter asked if I would I would ask it. That you know, obviously, I'm in the in the business of, of, of making recommendations on unit mixes, and, uh, and and obviously, there just is not a lot of demand for three bedroom units at twelve hundred, thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred dollars per square foot, where you have to wait four or five years. Do you have any discussions about 
family size units or, or building bigger product? What's what's the outcome of that that discussion how, uh, uh, in in your shop? Uh, all types of units, and what you're saying is true. The market um, sort of tells us what 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 is wanted, and you know we've built all sorts of units. Um, the the trend towards units that are, like so three bedrooms in particular the ones you've mentioned have not sold well um, so although they would be it would be we would be the first to be out there selling um, you know product if it was three bedrooms that sold or if it was four bedrooms or whatever it wouldn't matter to me um, we want to sell what the market is demanding but more more importantly I think from a policy perspective if you look at condo product it's for many people, it's the it's the their their um, you know their only way of getting housing at a at a at a reasonable affordability level. The the low rise market is just you know it's it's been on such a tear. Um, it's it's really intensifying issues of affordability. So when we look at our unit mix and the thing that the market has told us loud and clearly is is a priority, is making units that are as efficient as possible and and that are. You know the, that are supplemented by great amenities that have awesome environments and um, are, are situated in places where you can get out and enjoy the neighborhood and have great amenities in the neighborhood. In addition to the gyms, the the workspaces, the awesome outdoor amenities that that most condos that we uh, we design have. All, all of which is to say, when we're looking at um, designing our suite mix, it's it's been from a policy perspective, from a sales perspective, from a development perspective. Um, it's made sense to make these units as affordable as possible and as efficient as possible. And um, when we've when we've strayed from that for one reason or another and and uh, look to bring bigger units to market, those have been the ones that have been least in demand and and have frankly sat and have have not driven much interest. So the reality of what um, you know, I think what a lot of policymakers would love would 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 love to be the case and what is actually the case when you, um, when you test it is, is a bit different. Well, Steve, we're, we're, we're getting close to our hour, if not above our hour. We have uh, we like to close out on something we call the rapid fire. Steve? I, I think uh, Gavin's going to be good at this. He, he's going to definitely defy the five to ten word answer max. But Gavin, this is where you got to think on your toes. Is the public consultation process in Toronto democratic uh i think it's democratic it's it's uh it's certainly you know it's it's public and it's been i think i don't know really what you mean by democratic it's there and i think it's a good good avenue for people to voice their opinions um and often those are taken to heart by the counselors very that's a very good political answer there uh <laughs> are you for or against new highways in ontario uh, you know what? I don't know enough about it. I would say that uh, it depends on where the highway is, and and it, it has to be done in a way that makes sense. Like I, I I've read about the I've read bits and pieces about the new one that was being proposed, and that it's going to take off thirty seconds on the average commute. That for me doesn't make a ton of sense. But then you know, like policy wise, like some of the other things that they could do, like creating road tolls for me makes a ton of sense. That idea that. Um, that Tory had uh, that that got kiboshed quickly by Wynn years ago. I think that was that was a great idea um, for a lot of reasons, but that that one you know that one didn't get any traction. So I think there's like 
that's a big question, and I think it depends on where the highway is. But I would also think there's lots of other different ways to make that that policy goal make sense. I think that that answer not only did not even give us an answer, but was like 75 words. So <laughs> that's a fine. All right, here here's one for you. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, Greg Peacock, told me you're quite the avid runner, but you've been hitting the snooze button a little bit too much lately. Is that because you're attending a 7 a.m. meeting every day or are you just sleeping in? Yeah, that's rich for him to say because we planned one and he canceled to go up north. But uh, I, I, I'll say I'll, I'll say I'm snooze button more, more than meetings on that. Nice. Um, so Steve and I, obviously, we talked a lot about the, the increase in construction costs and, and the city. Um, do you see any major changes in how high-rise buildings are built over the next 10 years? Uh, n- not driven by hard costs, but um, so, so no, I don't, I don't see any. No, I don't. Perfect. I think you have one or two uh, investments or deals with Fitzrovia on the PBR side of things. Would you guys do a uh, purpose-built rental on your own or, or use strictly condo developers? Uh, we're, we're today we're strictly condo developers. Uh, our our areas of growth aren't focused on purposeful rental. We have that relationship with Fitzrovia, but our um, our growth areas certainly we would look at areas outside of uh, outside of condo in the long run. Not today, but in the long run. So please name the dumbest city councilor you've ever had to deal with. Next question. question. All right. All right. All right, I got, a, I got a question for you. You went to UCC. Uh, you have three kids. You going to send your kids to private school, or are you going to toughen them up at uh, public school? Uh, I haven't yet decided as a, a, a if if it's going to be all of them or not. But two of them are going next year. Where are they going? Uh, we have two girls going to have a go. Nice. 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 You're asking. Steve's asking all the personal questions. I'm I, I'm asking I'm asking the, uh, the the industry questions. But we'll get we'll, we'll give you another one here. Um, should the government, like Adam Vaughn was talking about recently, uh, make sure they're protecting the equity of homeowners? Should that be a top concern of our government? Uh, I I don't think no. Like not 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 the way that you just phrased it. No. Like there's there's lots of smart ways to um, to protect people but i wouldn't say that's that that goal makes sense as a as a straight up policy goal but i think it's going to happen naturally right really deep question this one's going to take a lot of thinking have you ever ridden the sidway have you ridden the sidway all the way up to transit city oh that one's easy yeah yeah of course yeah, absolutely. From our office, it was it was the fastest way to get up and down. So yeah, absolutely. This was pre-COVID when traffic was awful, but yeah, it's a uh, it's 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 a joy to get up there by subway. Wow, I uh, I wasn't expecting that answer, but that's great. So my analyst is a uh, top poker player, so I'm hoping that I will get an invite to your next um, uh, hold them for life tournament whenever that uh, occurs. But I wanted to know, uh, is it frowned upon to cheat in a charity uh, poker uh, game? It's, uh, it's frowned upon to get caught cheating at a, at a charity game, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, good. Okay, good, good. I love it. Um, 
There's a new budget. It's, it's April 14th when we're recording this. I know our producer, Nikki, hates when I say that, and I, I date stamp things. She gets frustrated uh, that, you know, the episodes might come out two, two weeks later. But don't mind that. Uh, liberals are coming out with a budget in, in two days here. Well, they say they are. Whether they do or not is another whole story. Um, do you think the liberals are going to release a capital gains tax on personal residences? No, I, I, I don't think so. No, I don't think they would do that. Uh, it, I would be very surprised if they did that. Perfect. Last last question. Do the Leafs make it to the Stanley Cup Finals this year? I'm going to say they do, but I'm knocking on wood right now. <laughs> Me too. Good way, to, good way to finish on a positive note. So, so how do people find you? Are you on, you know, on the TikTok, are you on the Instagram, Twitter, you know, obviously we took your bio off, uh, off the center core website. Give us, uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, what, what do they, what, how do they do so? Right on to him. LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, no TikTok. Um, all, all of those channels should be available. But you know what? Uh, the, the best way is just to email me, and my, my email is on our website. Awesome. Perfect. Well, th- thank you for, for joining us. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Congratulations right. again on the, uh, on the promotion, and uh, best of luck with uh, you know, your, your next five-plus years as uh, the leader of the organization. <laughs> we're, in, we're, in, uh, we're in store for some great things. So. Thanks for having me. Love, big fan of the show, and and you guys are hilarious, and I've, I've loved being a part of it. Um, so yeah, looking forward to seeing both of you again soon in person, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. All right, guys. Bye. Bye.